Political Capital is brought to you by Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. Hey everyone and welcome to Political Capital, your best weekly BC politics podcast. You know it, that's why you subscribed. I don't even know why I tell you each and every week, but it is the best. You can get it on Apple, the Google Tron, Podcast 5000, Podface, Podferry. It goes on and on. We are on all the formats and we're also reaching you here on Czech TV on Sundays as well as on the YouTubes as well. Thank you for joining us. We've got a lot to talk about this week. The legislature is in session. It's just broke for spring break, actually. Accomplished many different things that we're going to get into. And I want to quickly bring in the panel that you know each and every week as well. Joining us uh, from across the province, including way up in Nelson, is Jillian Oliver. Jillian, thank you for being here. Your green strategist, extraordinaire. We say it every week, but thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Katie Merrifield, also political strategist who's worked on many BC Liberal campaigns. Katie, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And McLean Kay, editor of the Orca.ca. Thanks, McLean. Thank you. And you didn't mention that we're number one on Podface. We are number one on Podface. There's only two things on Podface and the other is a <laughs> test feed, but that's okay. That is okay. We are on all the feeds uh, that you can possibly think about. Uh, and this week we are going to start with the issue of housing and homelessness. And this is one that we've kind of touched on a little bit in previous episodes, but we got a very clear indication from the province on what their homelessness and housing strategy is this week in Victoria. It picks up on Penticton, where we've talked about in the past, where the Attorney General's in a big kind of dogfight with the Mayor of Penticton over homelessness. Not a fight in Victoria because, well, maybe different political reasons. But let's go around the table and talk about homelessness, housing, Victoria, Penticton, the provincial government, what's going on there. Uh, Katie, why don't you kick us off? So for me, on the on the one hand, these tent cities are an out of control travesty. I think they need to be disbanded immediately. We have to halt the community violence as well as the inhumane conditions, uh, living conditions uh, for the residents there. Um, but on the other, um, so as we've seen, the this MOU that Rob is talking about uh, means that they're proceeding to construction phase on a variety of these community homes immediately, which means that it bypasses a very necessary step of community and residents input. So this is an area that I find a little bit concerning. It's a bit of a dangerous precedent to set to consistently impose this type of provincial will. Ultimately, I, I do think that there's politics at play here. The NDP promised 114,000 units of housing over the next 10 years. They, they said that in 2017. So I took a look at the government's own numbers and it, it appears that less than 16,000 um, have been built four years into a 10 year commitment. Uh, so that, that's not super impressive. And so perhaps that's why they're resorting to this more aggressive tactic. And then finally, I think politically, this is an easier fight in Victoria, obviously, than it is in Penticton, uh, given the NDP dominance in Victoria area ridings. So even if there were community protests or outcry, uh, you know, should they occur, 
Victoria is a very safe region for the NDP electorally, so it makes sense that this is a bit of a test run. Yeah, Katie brings up a, a good point there. The strategy clearly from the government is we will pay for housing, shelter, homeless, supportive housing in Victoria, uh, but we are not going to sit there through the municipal council rezoning process. We're not going to wait months. We're not going to allow the not in my backyard neighborhood resident association protest. We are bypassing that using the provincial powers and we're building it. And that's kind of the quid pro quo here for allowing for the government to bring the money the politicians have to kind of get out of the way. Uh, McLean, what do you make of that? Uh, I, I mean, you mentioned Victoria and, and the difference between Victoria and Penticton. For those of us who live in Victoria, this has been going on for a good year now. I'm on Pandora Avenue, and two blocks from here, there was a, a very large encampment, uh, which caused grief for you know local residents, the grocery store workers across the street. It's it's gotten out of hand. Uh, to Katie's point, uh, QP workers apparently refused to go into Beacon Hill Park months ago because they, they thought it was unsafe there. They had been threatened. So whatever the solution or solutions to the homelessness problem i i think in victoria we've learned that 24 7 camping can't be part of the solutions that doesn't mean that there, there doesn't uh, there isn't a need for greater investments and in things like housing but the entrenched camping it doesn't work yeah at the start of the pandemic 24 7 camping was the position of the city of victoria um, just that's what has caused beacon hill park and some other parks here to become tent cities uh john horgan went public by saying he didn't believe that was the right move. And he kind of took a, a swipe at the city council in Victoria. And uh, now his government is at the table with tens and tens. We don't know exactly what's been spent. Tens and tens of millions of dollars buying up hotels, not just here in Victoria. In Vancouver, they just purchased a Ramada hotel on Pender. Uh, lots of money going out the door on homelessness and low income and 24-7 wraparound supports. Uh, Jillian, what do you make of all of it? Yeah, well, I think it's funny, like whether it was intentional or not, the 24-7 campaign kind of like really shone a spotlight on it and almost like you can draw a direct line to the the urgency with which the province is acting now, I think. Um, but, you know, being from Vancouver and from Vancouver, you do see how sometimes um, the public consultation process is problematic and ends up being quite obstructionist and actually kind of backfiring and creating more opposition than there might otherwise would be to projects. Um, but I think on the other hand, the province does have to kind of like walk a fine line because they have to think about precedent, like Katie said, and, and, you know, what would this mean if it was a project that they opposed for different reasons when they were in opposition? Um, they are, it is different than Penticton. They've got the support of the local governments. And I think both levels of government have a mandate to deal with this issue. Um, so I think it's, it, it is a, it's a better way of doing it. They are trying to build in some consultation. There's a public engagement process. There's also going to be, um, community advisory committees for each of the projects to engage the local residents and make sure that their, um, concerns are addressed. But, um, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how it pans out for sure. Yeah. That, that satisfaction or lack thereof of the public, you know, the neighbors, the, the residents where some of these six projects in Victoria are going to go. That's really where we're gonna we're gonna get into the kind of part of this where yeah. the political heat's gonna get ratcheted up a little bit. In some ways, it's smart politics in that it insulates the mayors from that. It, it protects a housing project from getting scuttled by a really powerful resident association. We're a year from municipal elections here in British Columbia next October, and I could just see some of these projects getting tied down and red tape and protests and public hearings and redevelopment and variances. Next thing you know, they're gone. And I guess this removes that. The mayors can say, well, we didn't, I, I know you don't want this in your community, but it's not us. It's David Eby over there. Go get him. He's, and he's, he doesn't care. 
So I guess there's there's smart politics in that, in that, but it does set a precedent from the provincial government that we are going to solve homelessness by big-footing municipalities out of the way to get things built. And didn't work in Penticton, is working in Victoria. Will it work in Vancouver? Ah, you know, there's a lot more political dynamics in place there too. I I don't I don't know, but it's um I think we're going to end up talking about it again because it's the most aggressive homelessness strategy I've ever seen. Um, let's move on to Toilet Gate, where mm-hmm. we are going to take this podcast straight into the gutter on the issue of the Golden Throne, the lavish loo, the much ado about a loo in Victoria, in Vancouver, actually, underneath the Canby Street Bridge, a $645,000 public toilet in Vancouver's Cooper Park, which has caused some controversy in the legislature, the idea of that money from the provincial government's COVID relief economic infrastructure recovery program being spent on a a super expensive toilet, um, went as far as I think Fox News and the New York Post and a bunch of other international outlets. So let's go around the table on that, McLean. What What do you make, I guess, both of the issue and how it's kind of played out in the public? Well, I mean, for how it's played out in the public, this often happens when you have um, a scandal, if you want to call it that, with a comparatively small amount of money. People can relate to $645,000 in a way they can't relate to, you know, a billion dollar overrun on a, you know, how much does a hydroelectric dam cost? I have no idea. How much does building a school cost? It's not something you can reach out and touch. But a toilet is kind of like, you know, Bevoda's 12 or $15 orange juice. People understand how much an orange juice is supposed to cost. They understand how much a toilet should probably cost. $645,000 is worth more than this beautiful condo you, you see behind me, which, in point of fact, has two toilets. Whoa. And so you can understand why it's part of the 1% of luxury. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you can understand why people can relate to this in a way that they can't relate to, you know, the deficit, the site C cost, things like that. Yeah. It, I mean, does it matter that the details are that the toilet actually only costs 150000 and that the remaining 500000 is like infrastructure and sewer and lines and concrete? And uh, you're, you're right. I don't know if, if, if the public kind of cares about that or they just see the big number and just go, ah, um, Katie, what, how do you put it all together? I take unfettered glee in this topic. Uh, no, I don't think the public does care about those details. They see the price tag, they see what it's for, and they get enraged. Uh, I want to talk about comms a little bit here, though. Uh, real like kudos to BC Liberal MLA Todd Stone for getting this covered, as Rob noted, in the New York Post, Fox, and even RussianWeek.ca, which was a Whoa. publication I was unfamiliar with up until yesterday. Um, but like from my view, from the from the opposition's perspective, like I wouldn't have stopped there. Like I would have put forward a really robust digital strategy on this. Get videos out on TikTok and Snapchat, amplify those, share them do a fundraising e-blast to anyone that's ever signed up on a previous issue petition, throw out ads on Facebook and Instagram. There you're really reaching all of your target demographics. Like get your 22 year old communications intern to whip up some memes, perhaps contrasting spending priorities or doing a cost per flush meme. Like this will be the best day of their (laughs) life. Um, And these moments are really rare as political staff where you can really take something uh, like this and, and go with it. And as McLean noted, Billions of dollars in uh, in in a, a government misstep is not tangible, but a one piece of infrastructure, one toilet, which everyone knows what it is because they use it, uh, that's costing six hundred and forty five thousand dollars more than someone's home. Like that resonates, and so if I were the uh, opposition, I would have really uh, grabbed this and went. 
Yeah. The the ADP tried to get out from under it before before that could happen by trying to say, um, well, we didn't spend this money per se. It was grant applications from the city of Vancouver and the parks board, and they asked for it. We gave it to them. The end of all of this, we'll have an accounting of what it means and how Boring. it was spent. Yeah. It didn't <laughs> it didn't really derail the um the lavish Lou headline that went across yeah. the world. Um, but was there a Jillian, like, did you, what did you make of how, I guess, both government kind of tried to move it and the opposition tried to push it and where it all went? Uh, well, you know what? I was going to call a lid on this segment, but, um, I, I <laughs> Hey, that's my job. That, I hadn't heard that it had been on Fox news. And I, I think I just want to say like on these kind of like relatively smaller spending, like scandals in general, there's a reason why conservative media and conservative parties like it so much is because it, um, makes people angry and it makes people distrustful of government um, over relatively small things. Um, and I think that we should all be, you know, take that in context. Yeah, it is. Take not, that in context yeah. to amplify it. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> to in, that in context to blow it out of proportion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You're right, though, Katie. Like, we could have, I guess there could have been memes of John Horgan flushing bags of cash, you know, cartoon Horgan yeah. flushing bags of cash down a toilet or something. Not that he yeah. really had. Anything John's crappy to... spending, like yeah. you, the, yeah. the narrative writes itself. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor, Uber Canada. Ninety-two percent of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over one hundred forty thousand Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com/flexibilityworks. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And I'm sure the NDP would have found that unfair because he didn't spend it on a toilet. He of just gave not. it to the city and the city. But not, that, that's politics. It's not necessarily fair, I guess. And the NDP is amazing at this. Like go back to years ago with the the, the unfortunate like the wacky renting comments. Like the end. I watched the, the NDP's precision rollout on their comp strategy, and it was one that every political party should emulate. They hit all of their channels. That it started with uh, a statement in the House, then they McElroy started tweeting. That kind of went viral. They did an e blast. They had ads. They had memes. Like come yeah. on, do that. It's good. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's an indication of, I guess, that the opposition liberals are still finding their feet a little bit in, in opposition uh, and that they didn't seize on it that way. But they did. I did think there was a pretty good line in question period at one point where I believe it was Todd Stone or someone said, if we could just take the toilet paper holder from this golden yeah. toilet and give it to a nonprofit group that can't get any grants, maybe they could survive for another year. Just sell that toilet paper holder <laughs> exactly. for tens yeah, Todd, of thousands. Todd's narrative was great. I just think they should have amplified it further. Yeah. Interesting. It's weird how those subjects just come out of nowhere and suddenly yeah. get a life of their own. And next thing you know, multiple question periods, discussion at the legislature on a golden toilet of all things. Um, uh, there is, I kind of want to see it now, to be honest, but I, I think there's one <laughs> similar in Esquimalt that I might go check out, made by the Portland Lou Company, who it has like 
cleaning features and things so that it's not a really gross outdoor toilet. Anyways, I don't, I don't know. Well, I will go check it out and I'll report back on a future edition of the podcast. Mm-hmm. We'll take uh, 21 of the 22 minutes to talk about toilets again. So <laughs> it will be good. <laughs> um, that was part of a legislature session that wrapped up this week uh, with, I think, 11 bills passed. I couldn't honestly tell you what most of them did. It was not a spectacularly robust legislative session. It was weird. We've talked about it in the past where there's no budget. So a lot of MLAs were sitting around twiddling their thumbs, not quite sure what to do. Um, there were a few things that came and went about, you know, um, I don't know, there was bills on a bill to make gender language neutral and other bills. There was a real estate bill, an ICBC bill, uh, lots of other weird things. There was some a lot of discussion on government's COVID relief and government did move a little bit out on the small business grant program on aid for transportation companies and um, bus companies and airports and things. But all in all, not sure the public was seized, <laughs> not that it is ever seized by the legislature, but not seized in this session. Did we take anything away from how it wrapped and, and how we look at the budget, which is going to be in just a couple of weeks now, uh, Jillian? I think I agree. It was like pretty underwhelming session. Um, and, you know, I think the government really, like what was remarkable to me, and obviously I have a personal feelings about this because of having to run a campaign during the snap election, um, but they really raised the stakes on themselves. They insisted that they needed a mandate to do all this stuff, with, to implement all these great plans. And then we kind of just saw like not much, even the biggest thing that they sort of um started the session with the rent freeze was a continuation of plans under the minority government and the rental housing task force that the greens worked on with them so i think you know now the stakes are even higher for the budget presumably that's what they've been sort of saving all of their you know big plans for but um you know i think i think it's it was a little bit it was disappointing i had hoped that at least having gone through all of that um as a province we'd have something to more to show for it mm-hmm. what did you make of it uh, katie that's a really good point by Jillian in terms of promises made and promises not kept. I like that. Um, uh, for me, I, I've worked in government for, for 12 years. Um, but honestly, personally, I feel like watching almost any legislative proceeding is anywhere is about as exciting as watching water boil. Um, but <laughs> my, my observations, I, I thought the rent freeze bill was a smart tactic by the NDP to open up the session just because it's a bit of a natural wedge with the BC Liberals. So I thought that was effective. Uh, on the other hand, I think the NDP, the NDP proved yet again, they're not completely infallible with that horrendous uh, day one vaccine rollout. Um, we've seen a return to normalcy in the House. You see the BC Liberals really holding the, the government to account, like throwing shots as they should. And the Greens as refreshing. well. And the Greens as well. Um, and then I, just a brief note on the supply bill, which uh, which ended the ended the session. That was one of the most like one of the finest displays of hypocrisy that I've seen on both sides of the house. So the NDP, when they were in opposition, used to scream bloody murder whenever the BC Liberals would invoke closure on a bill. And now all of a sudden, it's nothing to see here. And on the flip side, uh, the BC Liberals used to say, you know, this is a routine measure once intelligent and sufficient debate has been has has concluded. And now all of a sudden it's a violation of the institution of democracy. So there is there is a lot of hyperbolic 
rhetoric closing off that supply bill, which I just found entertaining. Yeah, I called it on Twitter. I was like, time is a flat circle. We're just destined to repeat yeah. these things again and again. Where yeah. and, and what supply means um, for readers and or for listeners and viewers is, uh, you know, you debate stuff in the legislature until the government that has the majority says, I'm kind of done with this. I don't like this anymore. I'm going to use my power to pass a motion that cuts everything off, just puts a, ta- a time on a day, which was Thursday at like 3.30 in the afternoon, that's it, we're done at 3.30, call the vote. And, you know, if you're in the opposition, you say, well, that's not fair, I still have lots of things to say. And the government says, no, I think we've, I think democracy has served its purpose here. So that used to be something John Horgan in particular hated. He would just, mm-hmm. he would just be irate at that when he was in opposition. But now it's a great way to get out from under a bunch of debate you'd rather not have in the House. So mm-hmm. uh, the more things change, uh, the more they stay the same. But I thought, you know, as a session... I guess, you know, in the if I was good, to put it in the NDP's defense, you know, maybe, um, and we've talked about this before, COVID just takes over everything. Maybe this session was not what the NDP intended to do because they're just continuing to roll with the punches on COVID. They're trying to uh, put their effort into the mass vaccination. They're trying to do a bunch of other things. Maybe that just leaves them unable to execute a robust agenda as a new majority government, uh, despite saying they had one in the election, maybe that's coming. I don't know. I, I'm not sure, but it was. It was a. I think ob- objectively weak session with not much in it. Made me wonder why we were there. Um, and uh, I'm looking for a budget that is going to have a lot of vision in it. Otherwise, we go right back to Jillian's point, which is, what did we have an election for, without a plan or an agenda? Uh, to the public. Where is that? Where is the evidence of that? So I thought, Jillian, you made a great point there that uh, the NDP set themselves up with a little bit of a little bit of room to fail there. But let's move on to close the show here on the video portion with our hot take. We're going to go around the table here in a minute. Uh, lots of vaccination news, lots of promising vaccination news that maybe we're all going to get the jab by Canada Day raises the question, can we be traveling later this year? Can we travel in the summer? What is your comfort level on traveling? Do you think if even if you got the shot, would you be out there heading off to Mexico or elsewhere? Let's go around the table, uh, Jillian. Probably not that far, but I would, I, as long as it's you know compliant with public health orders, I would travel within Canada. I've got a brother in Montreal. I would do that if you know if that province is um, finished its vaccine rollout as well. But I probably wouldn't go further than the states, um, and maybe not even that. Yeah. What about you, Katie? I will 100% travel as soon as we are allowed to do so. Uh, I will also stay within Canada first so we can help our badly hurt tourism industry. Yeah. McLean? I would travel to Canada or the U.S. In fact, the U.S. might in turn might turn out to be objectively safer in terms of vaccination in a few months. But yes, later this summer, if things keep going the way they look, I'd travel. Yeah. I'm guessing the cost of travel is going to go through the roof the minute that we're allowed yeah. to go. It'll just suddenly mm-hmm. it'll go from an industry that is begging you to take a flight right now to... We don't have any flights left, so this flight here is ten times the price. Come on board; it'll be, mm-hmm. it'll be a wild uh, adventure. And I wonder, you know, how we will do here in British Columbia with tourism. If some people aren't traveling, but people are traveling here, is there going to be any mm-hmm. weird feelings about watching a whole bunch of Americans arrive who've been double vaccinated and we're still on one dose? I don't know, mm-hmm. but we'll we will uh, we will watch for that for sure. Okay, so I want to continue on a little bit more with some discussion of the session. Was there any leftover thoughts that people had either about the session or we'll phrase it as this way: advice we might give the parties based on what we saw and witnessed and experienced and 
are anticipating for the budget that's coming up soon. What, what, what would we say if we were trying to advise the parties on how they did and, and what they're doing right and wrong? Let's go around the table. I don't know. Who wants to jump in first there and uh, give us your thoughts on that? McLean, maybe? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, to pick, we can pick all three parties, but we'll start with, I'll start with the NDP. Uh, the advice I would give them for the next session is that the opposition um, seems focused on finding weak spots in cabinet in question period. They're, they are going to go for issues that are overseen by ministers they think will trip up or, or otherwise present a softer target, if you like. So yes, they're going to keep asking Adrian Dix questions about health because it's a pandemic, but he's not a soft target. I'm talking about some of the other issues we've seen, including, uh, I think we're going to talk about this a little later, the cruise ship issue mm -hmm. in which the minister in question appeared not to know about the issue at all. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, dismissed it as just a federal concern, which is the worst worst answer imaginable. It's that, well, we're not even, we're not even thinking about that. We're just vaccinating people right now. Not in the tourism ministry, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be my, my advice to the NDP is that shore up your weak points because um, they are going to continue to be targets. Mm -hmm. What about the other parties? Did you have any thoughts? Uh, the, uh, well, the, the Greens, again, choosing more or less at random. Um, I think they have done a phenomenal job of latching onto issues and uh, especially, well, both of their members, Adam Olson and, and Sonia Firstenau have really mastered this kind of like disappointed tone um and whatever without ever you know losing their temper or getting angry but still conveying the depth of their scorn uh, on on particular issues i find it very effective mm -hmm. um the one piece of advice i would give them is probably not so much for this coming session but a more long-term thing is the issues they have raised tend to be very local and specific which is fine and that's important but at some point they are going to need to establish a beachhead in the lower mainland and that will probably mean bringing some lower mainland specific issues to the fore. Now, they can't invent one, granted. Uh, Ferry Creek is happening and it is where it is. But uh, that would be my advice to the Greens. Keep doing what you're doing, but be very much on the lookout for a greater uh, Vancouver issue you can really pounce on and make your own. It's tough in Vancouver because sometimes mm -hmm. the issues there don't align with the green values, yeah. like building some type of solution to the traffic bottleneck at the Massey Tunnel. It is, it's a real, it's a real issue, you know, and yeah. it doesn't, there's no SkyTrain there. Um, so how do you kind of get into the middle of that or, or some of the other issues that, but you're right. I think the, you know, the Greens have done a great job on issues where the, the opposition liberals still struggle with credibility of uh, forestry, climate change, uh, mental health, things that clearly they did you know, the Liberals have a particular view on and it's not that far sometimes from the NDP. So the Greens can jump in and say, how about this big vision? Uh, how about this idea? And it's really super effective. It gets us talking about things that otherwise we wouldn't be talking about at all. So we'll come back. We'll, we'll do the um, come back to you, McLean, on the Liberals maybe. But mm -hmm. let's just, uh, Jillian, what do you make of both the government and the Greens? Why don't we go around on that? Yeah, well, I think like continuing my comments for the government, like I think they need to think about like how do they want to be able to tell, like honestly be able to say to voters, like how is your life different and how is it better than it was four years ago? Like they kind of got off the hook because they ran on affordability in 2017 and then they didn't have to campaign on it, like on having having not really kept that promise um, because of the pandemic and like that's not going to happen again. So I think they really need to think like, 
We'll get back to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Uber Canada. 92% of drivers and delivery people on Uber report that flexibility is important when choosing work. That's why over 140,000 Canadians choose flexibility with Uber. Learn more at uber.com slash flexibilityworks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This isn't just about like, oh, like they got called out for this with the mental health stuff. They made all these big announcements about safe supply. Well, overdose numbers are going up and supply isn't actually really rolling out in a way that's making a difference. So they need to, I think they need to think about like, how can they stop managing risk so much and how can they actually get things done so that people are going to feel an impact. And we have some big problems in in the province and they're going to have to go a little, swing a little bigger to actually Mm. do it. And I I mean, I think we're seeing that with the homelessness stuff like we talked about earlier, but there's a lot lot more files that they're going to have to tackle as well. Um, For the Greens, I agree. I think like I think they did a they did really well I think they need to pace themselves because it's always like it always makes me a little nervous if you're like really really strong at the beginning of a four-year mandate like they need to have they need to have somewhere to build and where to go but um you know I think the mental health was smart like I think that that is a issue that resonates in the lower mainland I think that's an issue that resonates everywhere um but yeah I'd agree I think they need to continue to sort of broaden out um and yeah and and keep building Katie what do you what, what advice would you give to the governing party four years in and the and the greens at this point yeah so with the ndp uh, similar to mclean um i think that a couple of ministers need to get a better grip on their files um you know minister mark and minister malcolmson in particular on the flip side i hope minister dix gets a vacation at some point because he truly has earned it um but overall to the government um COVID has a horizon like it, it it's kind of has an end date uh hope well Hopefully, hope yeah. And pray, <laughs> hope and pray that it has an end date. But you're right; you can um, sort now, of see it on the like once we get vaccinated, then what is the horizon, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the budget is where the rubber hits the road. Economic recovery is going to be the name of the game um, towards the end of this year um, and for the next few. This is not an a typical NDP strong suit. This area. And so I think they'll need to navigate really carefully as well as uh, keep their business stakeholders on side um, because, you know, without that, you may see their their popularity start to tumble. Uh, in terms of the Greens, again, I, I, I agree with McLean. I think the, uh, the Greens have done a formidable job uh, with their presentation in the House, particularly on issues of mental health. Um, but my suggestion would be um, even if it's not advocating for Vancouver issues in the legislature, just build up that apparatus in Vancouver, the lower mainland and, and other regions outside of the capital district. Mm-hmm. What about the liberals? Let's quickly go around. And is there anything we can say about the opposition and advice to them at this point? Yeah. They score some points on some things. Yeah. They We talked last week about the strategy that they're using, which is kind of surely bond, very personal, make a direct connection with John Horgan. He, he responds in kind and says, I appreciate it. Uh, why don't I meet you after question period and I'll 
tackle this issue directly, and then they go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then they move on to the next critic, usually health critic Katie Merrifield, and she just insults the Premier <laughs> to his face, just like, why are you trying to kill people, Premier? Why don't you yeah. understand <laughs> vaccines the way I do? And it's just like, ah. And I Did do- you mean... Did you mean to say Katie? Sorry, Renee Merrifield. I apologize. That's uh, once once more those rumors <laughs> are, are going to be stamped out all week. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen you in the same room, and so I guess that it's, is. We look so different, so <sighs> I blame Vancouver Sun correspondent Katie DeRosa for putting that in my mind, who made the gaffad one of her stories that put. Your name and Renee Merrifield's name, and then everyone thought you were running for leader, and then yes. I now have done it. And so don't worry. Okay. Don't worry. Um, the three viewers uh, are not going to notice that <laughs> error, I don't think, at all. But no, I, I, the Renee Merrifield or any other critic, there's a few others they have that are the pit bulls that, that kind of create this sort of like personable and then attack. And I, I guess it's effective. Um it's the strategy. Why don't we go around and does anyone have any advice to the liberals uh, on that? Uh, let's go back to you, Katie, and then wander around. Katie, if that is your real name. <laughs> yes. No, it's Renee. Okay. Um, <laughs> first of all, I think Shirley Bond is doing an incredible job. Um, I, I like the strategy that they've employed in the legislature, and I think they should keep it up. Um, they, I think they have found their footing, more or less. Like I, I know I talked about the digital strategy, the areas that they can capitalize on. Um but I think we're seeing media coverage is up for them. Their critics are settling nicely into their roles. So I think good for them. Um, my concern with the, the BBC roles going forward is going to be around the leadership race. Um, I, it's going to be curious to see if caucus chooses to engage and on what medium, uh, what platform they choose to do that. Last week, we saw a little bit of a hiccup. Uh, with potential candidate Aaron Gunn and then some BC Liberals jumping in uh, and attacking him. And I I just find it a strange tactic to attack somebody publicly constantly while also claiming they're irrelevant. So that's uh, going to be a tricky ground for them. And I'm sure we'll talk about that um, in a more fulsome way as we we proceed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jillian? Yeah, I, I think I think I do. I agree that Shirley has been Bond has been really effective, but I actually find the sort of like attack, like stronger attacks that come later on a little bit much and almost like start to work against the liberals, like because it gets to the point where they're sort of like speaking in such hyperbole that it's sort of like not credible and they sort of lose um end up losing the argument like what even like when they were attacking the uh vaccine rollout strategy and it was just you know it was the first day and it was it was effective at the beginning but then they started saying things like people have lost faith in the process like all you know and just kind of taking it too far and I think that they are more effective when they seem a little bit more serious a little bit more restrained um that's I mean that might just be my personal taste but um it is a thin line my advice can I, inter- can I interject? I totally see Jillian's point. And this speaks to the the difference in political climate between here and other jurisdictions. Like I would strongly encourage everybody who is listening or watching the show to watch one question period in Alberta. And <laughs> oh you will see, you will see the, the profound difference. Hyperbolic rhetoric is mm-hmm. kicked up times a hundred there. And it's, it's, it's accepted as normal. It's commonplace. The media, the media like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's, it's obviously a different, uh, it's different jurisdiction, 
we have a different political climate. Twitter is a much friendlier place in British Columbia than it is Alberta. I can confirm that. Really? But oh my it, God. It's just so funny oh. to me coming from two years there where I, I was just acclimatized uh, to the opposition taking this really fierce um, attack position. And so when I saw it happen once here and there was there was a reaction, it was it was just quite interesting to me yeah and yeah, and, people don't like it people walk out yeah. like when when they were still allowed in the legislature remember we had like school groups walking out and it was like yeah. oh, a news story in and of itself in bc yeah. it's yeah, yeah i think it is a bit of a different climate out here for sure and maybe it's partly because you know we have some liberal cabinet ministers asking questions in a way that they themselves were asked questions and hated and and sort of decried mm -hmm. and you know, whether you're there, there are still some cabinet ministers around like Mike DeYoung or Todd Stone or Shirley Bond or whatever, when they ask it in such a over the top way. And you think back to when they were treated that way and were and just kind of pushed back on it. And you sort of, I don't know, that disconnect for me is part of the trouble in watching. I believe they call that karma. Like, <laughs> karma, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But McLean, what do you make of all of this? What uh, advice would you give to the liberals? Well, I mean, first to the point about uh, hyperbole in that in question period, I, I think some of it is there is a little bit of pearl clutching going on about this. And it's part of that is because we had a year in which there was no hyperbole in the legislature and it was very sort of communal and all that. And and then it was ruthlessly taken advantage of. Right, and so, right. you know, you're seeing it. And it was it was yep. it was. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yep. yes, there's going to be a little bit of bitterness and anger. And a, yeah, we're not playing nice anymore. And I agree with to Jillian's point that there are times when it needs to be dialed back and more measured. That is a valid point. But I, I think that's where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, the advice I would give the BC Liberals is that I think they are uh, doing a better job at finding different tones. They're, they're, your point about Shirley Bond's approach versus some of the critics' approach is, is well taken, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. It can be interesting to see how the same minister will respond to diff two different ways of uh, being asked the same question. The advice I would give the BC Liberals moving forward is um, behind the scenes, keep doing what you're doing. Keep making yourself more available to the media. Um, accept that there will be times when there will be a story you don't like and just sort of roll with it and keep playing, keep, uh, keep taking the calls and keep making the calls. Um, there has been noted improvement there. It's not things the public sees on a day-to-day -day basis, but it does make a difference. You know who would have benefited by acting like what Shirley Bond is acting like right now would have been Andrew Wilkinson. I think, because yeah. when I watch Shirley Bond engage Horgan directly and find solutions to things, I think, that's someone who looks like a premier, you know, and she is in no way running for the party leadership and will never be premier. She's not even going to be permanent leader of that party. And maybe that's why she's able to do it that way. I don't know. But imagine if Andrew Wilkinson had taken a, that, that, that approach. And I guess what we know from him having gone through the whole cycle is he's not that person. He would have had to have kind of worked to get there. But phew, it does, it does teach a, I don't know, to me, a lesson to some opposition leaders that you can, as the leader, you know, find a way to engage that makes you look more leader-like without maybe having to go the attack route. I, I don't know. Maybe that's oversimplifying it, but McLean. You know, to, to Jillian's point about uh, earlier saying, you know, the being careful of the Greens, not peaking too early, really, and making sure you're building up towards the next election. That wasn't true of the last parliament, 
right? Where the BC Liberals in particular were convinced that, you know, the next election or whatever was just around the corner. And it, it always could have been. It didn't turn out that way, but, you know, it, it was always possible. The numbers made it so. And so I, I don't know this. I don't have any particular insight there, but that might have been why the foot never was taken off the gas pedal. Now, um, I think it's a pretty safe bet that we're facing an election four years out and exactly four years out. And so, yes, there's an opportunity to kind of plan a more of a long-term approach. Um, Cause I, I think Jillian is quite right on that. Yeah. And I guess it's also just worth recapping John Horgan's performance, which I think remains steadily popular and fairly strong. And uh, you know, like the guy's doing the job and people seem to be happy with him. and yeah, his government kind of, messes up here and there but he's uh he seems to sort of rise and continue to be above that and uh i guess that's a testament to his persona and uh, the the premier dad thing that he's created uh and and it, just who he is too because there's an authenticity that comes through with john horgan that connects with the public and that's always been a, a big kind of part of his brand and he's four years in right now shows no sign of of any problems on on him personally i don't know if uh, if we are in agreement with that, we can just skip the John Horgan part and move on. But if anyone <laughs> if anyone feels differently, now is the time to to say our piece. But um, yep. I, have, I think he did. I think he, I think that the popularity like might be more like we'll see if that's more kind of like people are tuned out and they just want like a steady hand right now. They just kind of want to like mentally think everything's okay and they've got it under control. Because I do think that he's had a couple like misfires like or when where he's contradicted his minister he's kind of like yep. shot from the hip in a press conference and that's something we didn't see as much in the under the minority government like i think he was a lot more measured and careful and he's been a bit more um a bit more bold like that um with some little mistakes they didn't have much of an impact like i said because i think people are just sort of like head down let's get to the end of this thing but yeah. it'll be interesting to see if he sort of like recognizes that and the kind of like takes a deep breath and feels it back a little bit once we get um, through yeah. this thing. I mean, John Horgan's biggest enemy and the biggest threat right now is himself, basically. I mean, there is no opposition leader in place. There's no, you know, he, he, his arrogance and the arrogance of the government is the is the potential threat. And I haven't seen it, yeah. but when you have a supermajority and complete control um, and four-year runway ahead of you, arrogance is the is the risk, right? And so I guess that's what we'll be watching for. With him, let's do our quick callback segment for the week. It seems hard to. We'll go back two years actually for this one. The federal issue, which we were all talking about around this time two years ago, Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC Lavalin scandal, which, in a very brief recap, was this idea that this major company was facing charges for fraud and corruption and bribery out of Libya, and the prime minister's office got involved with the attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould, tried to pressure her a little bit. Can you make this go away? There's lots of jobs on the line. Can you get a deal? Can you influence federal prosecutors for a deal? It was found to have been a conflict of interest by the prime minister, both real and perceived. Uh, but at the time, it led to secret audio recordings and testimony and resignations and calls for the prime minister to resign. And his principal secretary did, in fact, resign. Um, two years later, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, still an MP, the elected as the only independent MP in Vancouver, Granville. Was this as big a deal as we thought it was at the time? Was it overblown? Was it undercovered? Just quickly go around and get your thoughts. Uh, McLean, start us off there. I mean, if you went back in time three years ago 
and said that there would be a scandal in the prime minister's office in which there was a conflict of interest and the principal secretary would have to resign and the the head of the public service would be recorded essentially uh, directing a minister to do something uh, she shouldn't have been doing and and we'll we'll ignore blackface in the election as well if mm-hmm. if you had if you had told that person that the government would win the ensuing election mm-hmm. i mean uh, so I mean, to your point, was it overblown at the time? No, I don't think so. This was uh, this was a big story, and um, but it's, <laughs> we still have you know, Justin Trudeau still the prime minister. Yeah. And yeah. So it's yeah, it's kind of hard to reconcile because it does feel so long ago, partly because of the pandemic, and uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould still an MP. But I mean, this was at the time it felt earth shattering. Mm-hmm. And yet the earth is very much not shattered. Mm-hmm. And if you're a federal liberal, you would point to the election results of. Justin yeah, Trudeau and say it didn't matter at all. So yeah. it's hard to it's hard to factor that in, Katie. Uh, how do we put that in perspective? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple turning points from the the federal Liberals' first term. Uh, you know, the 2018 India trip uh, exposed an administration that was valuing brand photo ops visuals um, above else, and I think that made them look rather foolish and unserious. Then we had this incident. Um, with SNC-Lavalin, which exposed a bunch of really empty and earnest rhetoric on important issues like feminism, equality, and uh, Indigenous empowerment. Um, And with the other exceptions that McLean and others have noted, um, you know, we, yes, we saw the Liberals get reelected, but they did lose their majority. So there was, there was Mm. an impact there. However, then, (laughs) Then COVID hit, and now, now looking at the polls, um, you know, it appears the Liberals are potentially on track to regain that majority, um, provided the variants don't exceed the vaccine deployment, uh, which would, you know, interfere with their early election timing. Um, so yeah, I, at the time, I thought that this was going to end them with with all of those things combined into one, um, but. You know, the Canadian voters chose to place their faith back in this prime minister. They have a minority. They have gotten through COVID. We can argue how successful that has been. Um, and I guess we'll see. I think I, I was I was really headstrong that we were going to have a provincial or sorry, a federal election in June. Um, but with the with the acceleration of the variants, I think Jillian and McLean, you might win this bet that we did next week. It might be pushed into the fall. I know I'm really upset about it. Yeah, yeah you were close. Yeah. Jillian, uh, I guess the, the only other yeah. end to this story is that SNC Lavalin did in fact eventually plead guilty to one count of fraud and paid a $280 million fine and mm. then issued a public statement saying that it's pretty sure it can still apply for all the government contracts, which was which was the original, <laughs> nice. the original problem with this was if they were convicted criminally of the charges, they would have not been able to bid on government contracts. And there's a Canadian company with lots of jobs. And so they got their deal and they emerged from it in a better place. And Trudeau was reelected, albeit with a minority. And I guess that washes away of maybe some of what was happening at the time. Yeah, I think like that's I didn't know I didn't follow that part of the story. It's funny. Um, no one did. It just kind I of think, ended, you know. It was yeah. just like, well, oh, SNC level, whatever. Like, uh. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's not the first time that they've been caught doing something shady. But um I think, you know, it was like definitely a crack in the Liberals brand. But the issue with this um issue has always been that 
like the official opposition doesn't really have a lot of credibility on the other side. Like nobody was like, oh yeah, like the conservatives wouldn't do this, right? Like, or they're like, or they wouldn't, you know, put jobs in the economy over like ethics, basically, sorry, Um, to put it bluntly. Um, So I think maybe though you do see, like we're seeing really strong um, favorables for Jagmeet Singh um, and some good polling for the NDP that that might be sort of like, in terms of um, residual effects on the respective parties brand that we might see little kind of remnants of that um, if the NDP do have um, some more success in winning back some more seats this time. Yeah. Okay, let's hit our last topic here. We're going to go around quickly on it. The issue of cruise ships. McLean, you touched on this earlier. This came up in the legislature. The Alaskan congressional delegation has a bill on the floor of the U.S. Congress that would give uh, cruise ships in the United States the ability to skip Canadian ports. You go from Seattle to Alaska. Technically, there's this weird maritime U.S. law that the ships have to stop in Canada. Uh that won't match up with the American super vaccination schedule where they want to get cruise ships going in May. We have a ban on cruise ships in Canada till February next year. So the Americans want to skip us out so they can get started again. Ah, this was a, it was a QP issue calling on the BC government to do something about it. doesn't really have anything to do with the BC government, but the minister, Melanie Mark, the tourism minister, duffed this thing so bad that it made the BC government look like it wasn't doing anything when it really doesn't have anything to do. Uh, let's go around the table really quickly on that, uh, uh, Katie. Like this is an important issue. There's like two billion at stake, I think, in terms of economic impact um, with regards to the minister's performance. I think she was a little off the mark on her file. Mm-hmm. Ah, I got you there. You guys, I got you. Guys exchange uh, hilarious uh, puns all day can... on our text. I tried one pun. Yeah, I know. It's worked a, really hard on it, a, and no one laughs. You're all rude. It's a, it's a great segment. Or... Yeah. it's a great joke by uh, Renee Merrifield. There, we're moving on to. <laughs> Anyways, so okay, jokes aside. Uh, I imagine a staffer was uh, in in Minister Burke's office was ripped a new one this week because you saw the. CEO of the Victoria Harbor Authority um, say that he offered a briefing not once but twice and was rebuffed. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Like when stakeholder relations are really critical at all times, but but more so when a sector is experiencing hardship. So even if you don't provide that stakeholder immediate answers, you want to be in constant contact with them to avoid mishaps like that. Like the premier had to issue manage for her in the middle of a scrum. That's 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 not good from a political staff perspective um, or from the minister's perspective herself. So um, yeah, I, I think that they need to, I think, I think she needs to get up to speed here. Or take the question on notice. I mean, I know that looks a little weak. If you get a question, question period, you don't know the answer. You can either stand up and bluster your way through four questions until you create enough of a mess beneath you that you fall through it into the floor or Mm -hmm. take the question on notice or, find a way to sidestep it but don't just uh, the idea you can filibuster your way with rhetoric through an issue uh, when the opposition's coming at you because they know you're weak um, or look weak Um, I'm not saying she's weak but she she appears to be weak from the opposition side that's why they're coming at her is um, you got to come maybe with a better strategy than just to stand there and say nothing for 15 minutes of question period McLean well I mean I'm actually surprised that ministers don't take the 
take a question on notice more often just as a general tactic because it forces the opposition to completely rethink their question period strategy. Uh, and you're not saying you don't know the answer. You're being, this answer deserves a, a better answer than I can give you today, so I'll give it to you tomorrow. Um, you're right. This would have been an easy problem for the NDP to avoid. Melanie Mark should have gotten up and just said, you're right, this is an absolutely crucial issue, and that's why I have been engaged with my counterparts in Ottawa, and we've reached out to people in Alaska. Just sort of, yes, it's a federal issue, but we're on top of it in exactly yeah. the same way that you demanded the the opposition demanded uh, we that the then government be on top of softwood also not a provincial issue also warranted some at least provincial intervention um, instead Melanie Marx seems to have a bad habit of kind of spiking the football football saying it's not my problem you know it's a federal issue why are you even asking me I have nothing to do with me you know why are you asking me about my emails I filed yeah. them in folders it's uh, you know yeah it's, um it's it's not a good tactic and it's uh I, I think that she would be well served to just sort of say yeah it's an important issue and that's why I'm working really hard on it yeah Jillian was there anything that they that I mean it's a huge issue it's worth a lot of money it's not really a BC thing and yet it is now a BC thing and now what do we do with it? Well, tourism is a, a BC thing. And I didn't know anything about this issue. And it was actually like one of the most interesting topics ended up being one of the most interesting topics to like do research on this week. Because two and a half billion sounds like a lot. It's about 10% of our $20 billion tourism industry. But you know what it is also 2 billion is our adventure and ecotourism industry. Right. Um, nice plug. <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, you know, and the other thing that struck me about it is like, you know, BC is like such an amazing place. We have such amazing potential for our tourism industry. Like, do we really want to just be relying on like these big cruise ships that are forced to be here? Like we have the ability to tr attract tourists, um, that like really want to be here. Um, and I think that that's like something that the minister could have kind of pivoted to like what she actually is doing. Um, because there's, there's, you know, the, the government is really taken on the sort of like build back better um, moniker. There are things that people don't like about cruise ships. They are obviously have um, detrimental to the environment. They're can cause big traffic jams downtown. Like a lot of people that live downtown, I used to live downtown Vancouver. It can be like, you want to be like out of there when a cruise ship is coming in a lot of the time. So I think it, you know, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's, it shows how many things there are to rethink once we um, get through the vaccination rollout and hopefully the government is already thinking about those things. Yeah. Plus I, I don't know if I'd want to go on a cruise ship now after seeing what happened during the pandemic, you know, the ones docked in the, so what was it on the side of Spain or Italy or wherever that cruise ship was? Tokyo. There Tokyo. Was one. Yeah. And yeah, they were stuck Tokyo. waiting there and the air quality in the cruise ships. And I, I don't know. Uh, that's, just, yeah. that's just me. But um, yeah, that issue is going to boomerang back. Whether it passes through the U.S. Senate, I don't know. I don't understand the current U.S. climate to know whether a bill is going to pass or not. But there was a compromise suggested by Alaska involving technical anchoring and things and maybe the bc yeah. government's got to jump on that push it with the prime minister get a win out of this somehow um it's certainly not going to come from the tourism minister's office so now the premier's got to do it himself and and maybe make it happen but that's what happens uh, sometimes when you're the premier and uh, you have a cabinet and not everyone is on top of their files and you got to end up doing their job for them it's just kind of oh, it's kind of the way it, it is true of every government at every level of, of every stripe there is always a weak link in the chain it yeah. doesn't matter how strong the other the other links are it's just true yeah okay well that's great thanks everyone uh, for being here fantastic panel this week and thank you for listening to the podcast make sure you subscribe we will be back actually next week we are off due to easter but we'll be back uh, for you the following week and uh, we will talk to you then. Thanks so much for listening. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.